Our scripture reading uh, today is taken from the book of John, chapter 6 and verse 35. John chapter 6 and verse 35. If you have your Bibles, open them up. We're going to hit a lot of texts today. Um, And as we move further into the sanctuary, John chapter 6 and verse 35 says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Our message this Sabbath is entitled, Dining with the Divine. Dining with the Divine. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and your truths. Lord, once again, I ask that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty and sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen nor heard today. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. It's our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So just a little recap on the sanctuary. Um, you all remember we started on the outside and we talked about how even the white linen curtain and, or fencing that went around um, was over seven feet tall, so tall that you couldn't just look into the sanctuary. You actually had to go into the sanctuary. There was an entrance gate here that was longer than it was tall, which spoke to the fact that all were welcome to come in, that God wanted everyone to come in. Um, And Jesus was not only the gate here, Jesus is also the door here. So we'll come back to that. When you came in, the largest piece of furniture in the sanctuary was the altar of burnt offerings, or the brazen altar, um, upon which only certain animals and clean animals could be placed. Um, And it was for uh, twice a day to deal with um, daily sin. So in this time, when the sanctuary was around, Sin was a very costly and painful thing. Can you imagine that you have a, a, a flock of animals at your house, and when someone has sinned and, and they have to bring this thing, and that animal that you loved, possibly, now has to be laid to rest on this altar, as it was type to the antitype of the cross where Jesus, our lamb, died for us. In fact, the Bible says that Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Then we go from there to the, bra- the bronze laver. And the bronze laver is where they washed. And remember, we talked about how this represented the word of God. Even the, 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 the laver, had, had, uh, the, the bronze was polished to look like mirrors. And it represents the fact that the word of God washes us, number one. But it is as we look into God's perfect word. And we're going to get deeper into God's word today. As we look into God's perfect word, we see where we come short. It is the word of God held up, especially the commandments of God, held up to us that allow us to see where we are failing. It drives our, our knowledge of our need for God. And then the water washes. It is the word of God. By the power of the blood, it washes us so that we can become clean. I want you to stick a pin, as my Jamaican grandmother would say. Stick a pin right here. Because we're going to remember this as it relates even to foot washing in the ordinance of humility when we have communion. 
because the priest could not go into the second door, which was a perfect square, which represented Christ again. And upon this was the, the beautiful tapestry. And as you walked into the sanctuary, as you left from the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the brazen uh, laver and went into the sanctuary, the priest had to wash his hands and his feet and his face. He had to wash um, before he could go in to the part of the sanctuary called the holy place. And when you got in there, coming from the east, and the tribe of Judah would have sat over here on this side, and all the tribes would be around. When you got into, into the holy place, as you stepped in, the first thing you would see to the right of you was the table of showbread. To the left was the golden candlestick, so the menorah. And in front of you was the altar of incense. Just three pieces of furniture. The entire room was golden. Except, as we talked about, the soffits which the beams were placed into, 100 of them were of silver, of, 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 of burnt silver, polished silver, meaning that it represented um, our, our redemption. Just as we have to go through fire because Christ is the gold. Come on, somebody. But we are like the soffits. We, we sit at the bottom. This is why the scripture talks about us being pillars in the house of God that cannot be moved. And as you looked around, as you stepped out of the courtyard and into the holy place, no longer was the hot desert sun beating on the priests. When they went in there, the only light was the candlesticks. The fragrance in there was different because there was baked bread. There was incense happening. All five senses came alive as you stepped into the tabernacle. And as you got in there, you could see, as you can see here, it was um, very well constructed. Interesting, and I don't know, if, maybe we'll get to it on another talk. The entire sanctuary, the furniture lays out like a cross. And so as you step in now into the most um, kind of, the most, um, uh, kind of intricate part of the sanctuary, in that there's three pieces of furniture, where there's only two in the courtyard and one in the most holy place, this is where the priests did most of their work. If the courtyard represents justification... The holy place represents sanctification. And then the most holy place represents glorification. As you move through the sanctuary, you move through the stages of salvation. It is not enough to enter the courtyard, place an, altar, uh, an animal on the altar, wash your hands and go home. The Christian walk, the most of the time, and even when we line this up prophetically, if we get a chance, we'll do that. The courtyard only represents a few years. It represents the time of Jesus' life, basically, the cross at the altar and the resurrection at the, lab, uh, at, the, at the labor. It's just a few years. It is in the holy place that we go from the time of the birth of the church. And remember, I said at the door is where they began to, to recognize historically when the church was at the door, his, when you line up the prophecy with the history, that's when they started to recognize and wait for the second coming. So it's from the time the church is established, like at Pentecost, all the way to 1844. Most of the history of the church, when you line up the sanctuary prophetically, actually happens in the holy place. I want to submit this to you. Most of your Christian walk will happen in the holy place. 
In other words, the lessons you learn from the holy place are the lessons you need to grow as a Christian, to not just be justified, but to be sanctified, to develop the character of Jesus Christ. Those lessons happen in the holy place. And the problem, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but the problem with Christendom in general today is that too many sing the songs of the courtyard and never sing the songs of the holy place. Too satisfied with the emotional feeling that I have been justified that they fail at the work of sanctification. And sadly, even collectively, as a church, this can happen. Well, to show you, I even, I even bought from this Adventist artist. I wish I, I should say his name so somebody else can. But he makes these beautiful pictures um, of the sanctuary. And this is what the holy place would have looked like. I don't know that the angels would have looked like this. Because um, there are angels here, but I have no idea what they would have looked like. So this is his rendition of it. But as you can see, you walk in. And can you imagine when the light hit the gold? And the whole place lit up. And what, can you imagine? So when Nebuchadnezzar and these guys got there and, and they saw this temple, when Hezekiah showed off to the Babylonian emissaries and showed them all that he had, they went all the way back to Babylon like thieves, just rubbing their hands. We're going to get them. Because it was such a rich worship place. And it represents the condition the church is supposed to be in. It represents the condition we as individual temples of God should be in. So today we're going to focus on this piece of furniture. We're going to focus on the table of showbread, also called the table of presence. And there's a reason it has both of those names. But in order to make this point, I'm going to go back to Exodus chapter 24. We read from here earlier in the series, and we're going to do we're going to do we're going to do a lot today. So let me let me let me get into it. But Exodus twenty four and verse nine through eleven says, "Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Remember we talked about them before. The seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his foot, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it and as it were the body of heaven in his clearness. They looked up." Moses, Aaron, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel, Joshua included. And when they looked up, they saw God. And when they saw him, they could see he was, some translations would say he was as clear as the sky. Upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand, even though they saw him, is what, the, what some of the translations says. And listen, look at this. And did eat and drink. When you start to really, as you start to really unpack verse 11, what happens is that they have a meal with God. They go up and God invites them up. They're able to see a, a, a silhouette, I would say, of his presence. And they're able to open up and begin to, to dine and eat with the divine. Moses has a meal and Abraham, there's another passage I was going to show where Abraham actually makes food and has a meal with the pre-incarnate Christ, the Lord. It is through our time that we spend with God 
in, uh, in, uh, just as there is like a, almost a, a connection that's made around the dinner table, God wants you to eat with him. The first time in the Bible that the word table um, appears is for the table of showbread. A table represents a place of gathering, a place of connection. This is why in Revelation 3 and verse 20, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come up into him and will sup with him and he with me. The word sup is an old English word. We don't really say that anymore, but it's for the word from which we still use the word supper. It means to eat, to come in and dine. Jesus says, I'm knocking at the door. I want you to come and I want you to dine with me. What I want you to understand about the table of showbread, it wasn't just a piece of furniture. It was the dining table in the holy place. This is where the priests on a regular basis were to have their fellowship and their mealtime with the God of the universe. And watch this. If you are failing in your Christian walk to spend time dining with the God of the universe, you're in trouble. As you can see, we'll set up. They could come over here and the priests would enjoy. We'll get more into it. Again, they had to be clean before they came in. They had to wash before they came in. And we often obviously connect the table of showbread and the bread and, and the drink offering that is there with the, with the, with the practice of communion. I, was, I mentioned this earlier. It's one of the reasons why traditionally what we do is we wash feet before we take communion. Because communion is an incredibly sacred um, uh, uh, event that the church has. Its origins go all the way back to the table of showbread. The difference is, at the time of the table of showbread, the priests were the only ones who could partake. It was Christ at the Last Supper that changed that. And when he did, he literally was connecting the table of showbread to himself and to his disciples and giving the church a new way to fellowship with him. Through the ordinance of humility on the one hand, and then through the act of communion on the other. Now, let's describe the table. Exodus 25, 23 through 25 says, Thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood. Two cubits shall the length thereof be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. That's the width. And a cubit and a half the height. Thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereto a crown of gold round about. It had a crown on it, not horns, like some other pieces of furniture had. Horns represent power. The table had a crown on it because the table represents Christ and his majesty, his royalty. And thou shalt make unto it a border of a hand breadth around about. And thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. And the crown also served to keep the bread and anything on here from just sliding off. Verse 26, and thou shalt make for it four rings of gold and put the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereof over against the border shall the rings be for places of the staves uh, to bear the table and thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be borne with them and thou shalt make the dishes thereof and spoons thereof and covers thereof and bowls thereof to cover with all of pure gold shalt thou make them this is there's more to the meaning to this than you realize. In the time when this is being, when, this, when, when Moses is getting this instruction, this is literally how they would define. 
that you had a home. You had a table with dishes. When God gives this instruction, he's saying to them, I am setting up my home here. I'm going to be among you. That the, uh, the, All of the pieces of gold, all of the artifacts for the sanctuary uh, as it pertains to the table of showbread was saying that God was saying, this is my dining table and this is where I'm going to be. And then he says, verse 30, and thou shalt set up Set upon the table shewbread before me always. Powerful. Always this bread was supposed to be there. So let's, let's get a little bit more into the table. It was also called the table of presence because it stood in the presence of God. In fact, the Hebrew word even gives the connotation that it causes you to turn towards God. And what was sitting on the table? Bread. Bread would cause you to turn towards God because as we're going to talk about, the bread represents a form of God, as we'll see. It was the same height as the Ark of the Covenant and the graded network of the brazen altar. It was three feet long, a foot and a half wide, and 2.25 feet high. The poles and rings were made so that you could carry it without touching it. You weren't supposed to touch it. First time the word table, as I said earlier, was used in the Bible. The showbread, there were two piles put on, six each. It represents the 12 tribes of Israel. It was made from fine flour. The flour had to be so fine that when you pass your hand through it, you would never feel a chunk or a clump of anything. It had to be beaten fine. It represents the body of Christ that was also beaten. It was baked weekly, and it was only one group of people who could bake it, uh, and fresh bread was placed on the tabernacle every Sabbath. And this is where it gets interesting. The Sabbath is marked in the, in, the, in, the, in the sanctuary on the table of showbread very clearly. Can you imagine that every Sabbath, when the priest showed up to go into the holy place, they had to bring in a freshly baked, the smell of the bread was still going up. And the bread that had been there for the week, they had to take it and they had to consume it. But they could only eat it in the holy place. The bread was their sustenance for the Sabbath day. But it speaks to the fact that the Sabbath is tied to the word of God. It was a perpetual thing that this bread would be brought in on the Sabbath day. The priest would eat the leftover bread, but only in the holy place. And frankincense was put on the bread. And even on the table, it represented purity and royalty. The same frankincense that was brought when Jesus was born. So what does the bread actually represent? John 6, 32 through 35 says, Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. They wanted the bread until he began to explain it. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never what? Shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. The bread represents Christ. Literally, we are supposed to feast on Christ. Because, as we're going to show you, in a spiritual sense, he is so much more than we even imagine many times. But just as every Sabbath... The bread was put in fresh every Sabbath from the pulpit and from the Sabbath school uh, 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 sessions that we have. Every week, 
fresh bread is to be brought into the house of God. Every week, the word of God is to be preached. It is not supposed to be uh, some, some, some watered-down version of the word. It must be fine flour. 1 Samuel chapter 21, I'll give you an example of how important this bread was. Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why are you alone and no man with you? In the previous chapter, David and Jonathan finally separate and part ways. They weep. They kiss each other. As they realize that David's, predict, David's statement of Jonathan, that his father Saul wants to kill him, is a true statement. When Jonathan tries to uh, defend David's absence at the table, his father, Saul throws a javelin at his own son. And that's when Jonathan realizes David is right and that he is going to have to tell him to run. And remember he does the whole trick with the little boy and he shoots the arrow? David goes first to Ahimelech. The spirit of prophecy, and if you just kind of read the Bible clearly, was probably the wrong place to go to, was to Ahimelech. He probably should have gone to Samuel. But David was worried to go home because he didn't want to endanger his family. He was worried to go to Samuel because he didn't want to endanger Samuel. So he came to Ahimelech and tells a lie. And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, the king hath commanded me a business. And hath said unto me, let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee. And what I have commanded thee, I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what is under thine hand? David asked the high priest. Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or what there is present. Ahimelech answers David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread. The only bread I have is the holy bread, the bread from the table of showbread. And, you not, and David was not supposed to eat that. He says, If the young men have kept themselves at least from women... And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days. In other words, they had to be pure. And this was the way that the priest seems to wink at the idea of giving the bread to David. And since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is, a, is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest, the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread. That was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. The next time this story is referenced in the Bible, Jesus references when the, uh, when the, when the Pharisee says that his disciples are sinning for picking uh, corn on the Sabbath day to eat. Jesus references this story. The interesting thing about that and the power of, of understanding what Jesus is doing is he's referencing a story of David's second greatest sin. Arguably. He's referencing a story where David had to lie to get his hands on the showbread. But God realized that David's survival was in this uh, interaction. God had a plan for David. God's word is so powerful that even when you have messed up, even when you have failed God, as David does in this story, God is still willing to feed you with the bread of life. There are a lot of people who turn and run from God because they've made mistakes. But you notice David seems to have one, re one thing about him. He always comes back to God in the final analysis. The lesson of the shoebread with David is, no matter what, never stop eating the bread of life. 
So further, what does the bread represent? Well, in John 1 and verse 1 and verse 14, we understand better who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. So the Word is Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, what did the bread represent? John 14, 6, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. No man come unto me uh, but by the Father. Look at this. So Jesus equals the word, he equals the truth, and he equals the bread. All of those things Jesus represents. Part of the reason the enemy works so hard to destroy truth is because if he can eradicate truth in the church of God or in your heart and mind, he can expel Jesus from the church or from you. The reason that studying God's word is so important, and this is not the simple study that we talked about when we're talking about the, the labor. This talks about going much deeper and understanding the Bible for yourself because if you do not understand the Bible for yourself, you will eat bad bread and think it's God's bread. Matthew 16, 6 through 8 says this, Then said Jesus unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The disciples, Ooh, wait, leaven, bread. Oh, we forgot the bread. And the reason among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which then Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves, because you have brought no bread? Why are you guys worried about physical bread? Do you not understand Neither remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up. Neither the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up. How is it that you do not understand that I spake it unto you concerning bread, that you should be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Now watch this. Then they understood how he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, watch this, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Leaven in the Bible represents sin. The leaven, the bread in the, sh uh, the showbread was unleavened. Most agree. It was unleavened. It, uh, leaven represents sin. Leaven also represents false doctrine. Jesus warns against false doctrine. And what happens when the bread we're eating is not renewed? When we are only regurgitating what we already know, what clearly begins to happen is that there are, is a rise in false doctrine. The church becomes subject to untruths. People begin to argue and fight. Division rises up in the church when we are not all feasting on the bread. Christ Jesus, the word, the truth. And this has happened to Adventism before. Back in the early 1900, Dr. Kellogg uh, from Kellogg Cereal um, came up with this book, The Living Temple. I'm going to go a little bit deep for a second. This book was written um, to promote the concepts primarily of pantheism, that God was already in everything. By doing this, and I'm going to read for you the warning Ellen White gave about this um, this false doctrine. And I want to submit to you that the doctrine has re resurfaced in many ways in churches today. 
We used to sing a song, uh, God's not dead, he's still alive. I can feel him in my hands. I can feel him in my feet. I can feel him in the street. Right? That God was everywhere. That false doctrine raises his head again. But because of this, Sister White had to actually confront this false doctrine head on. And it was, she, was, she was concerned that it would unravel all the work of 50 years that the church had done. One book. One false doctrine. She says this in Selected Messages, book one, page 200. I am instructed to speak plainly. Meet it is the word spoken to me. Meet it firmly and without delay. But it is not to be met by our taking our working forces from the field to investigate doctrines and points of difference. We have no such investigation to make. In the book Living Temple, there is presented the alpha of deadly heresies. The omega will follow and will be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning God has given. So this false doctrine in the early 1900s was the omega of, 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 of heresy. But Sister White warns that an omega, uh, it was the alpha of, of, of heresy. But Sister White warns that there's an omega of heresy coming. And the warning is that it will even be worse. Selected message, book one, page 194, the battle is on. Satan and his angels are working with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. They are untiring in their efforts to draw souls away from the truth, away from righteousness, to spread ruin throughout the universe. They work with marvelous industry to furnish a multitude of deceptions to take souls captive. Their efforts are unceasing. The enemy is ever seeking to lead souls into infidelity and skepticism. He would do away with God and with Christ who was made flesh and dwelt among us to teach us that in obedience to God's will, we may be what? Victorious over sin. I want you to get this. The sanctuary message, one of the core elements of it is victory over sin. The apostasy that was had Initially, and I don't have time to get into it today, that alpha apostasy was an apostasy that said, God is already in you. There's no need to do more. Once you're saved, you're always saved. There's nothing else you need to do. You can just, you're, you're saved and that's it. You can walk away. That's the alpha of apostasy because you believe God's already in you. But the spirit of prophecy warns us that God does not dwell in the sinner. If, if someone chooses to, to, to d deliberately live a life of sin, God will not dwell in them. I like what she says here. She said he would do away with God, with Christ, who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Why did Christ come? Why did the bread come from heaven? To teach us that in obedience to God's will, we may be victorious over sin. And what I'm really speaking about here, church, is the perfection of character. And to develop the character of Christ, that is the goal of the church. When folks stand up in front of the church and talk about how many baptisms and how many members, that is irrelevant if none of them are seeking the character of Christ. What matters to God is that he comes back for a church that is without spot or blemish. 
So my role as a Christian isn't simply membership in the Adventist church. That's staying in the courtyard. My goal as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian is to develop the character of Christ. It's not enough to be a Christian who just shows up to church and and just calls on Jesus' name uh, when you're worried about what's going on in your life. We must be every day seeking God's face. That's why the Bible says that on the table of showbread, the bread was to be there constantly, consistently. Because if you are not careful, if you're not uh, uh, consuming, digesting the bread of life, Christ Jesus, that's why he says to them, you've got to eat my flesh. And the Jews say, oh my goodness, this is cannibalism. We can't eat his flesh. They didn't get what he was saying. You've got to eat me, the word of God. You've got to understand me. You've got to be in an intimate, personal connection. I must be more important than anything. Because when you get into that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ, Sin becomes detestable to you. How could you want to, Paul says that when we sin, we crucify Christ afresh. If you really love Jesus, are you going to walk into sin, knowingly sinning, intentionally sinning, intentionally crucifying the Christ you say you love? And this, friends, is where the omega of apostasy begins. In the idea that the Christian cannot gain victory. That's where it begins. Because what happens then is you've got to now begin to parse things back. You've got to tell God that he must accept you uh, without you accepting his power to change you. Now watch this. How is this resurrect? How is it already raised its head? One of the things that I don't know if you're noticing how many people are coming out against the Trinity now. Now, the word Trinity does not show up in the Bible, but the word Godhead does. And in the Bible, it says that we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I could go on and on. I have whole sermons on that. But why is it that now the devil wants to make the Holy Spirit of none effect? Why is it that he's attacking even the divinity of Christ, which is the spirit of Antichrist? Why from Adventist pulpits? Is it being preached that the Holy Spirit is not a person and that he is not divine? He is not God. Let me show you. Well, Ephesians 1 and verse 13 says this. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, that's that bread, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed. When you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit seals you. Watch this. Ephesians 4 and verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is what seals you unto the day of redemption. Now watch this. Revelation 7. 1 says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Look at what he says. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have done what? Till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. It is the Holy Spirit that does the sealing. 
if you take away the divinity and person of the Holy Spirit, what hope of you of being sealed? This is why this is part of this, 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 this rising apostasy. If we, can, if we can bring the Holy Spirit back down to the ground. If, in fact, what many are trying to do is to bring God down to be like them. Part of this time of apostasy is the, the arguments I'm seeing between folk over what color Jesus was. Folk are more worried that they look like Christ on the outside than that they look like Christ on the inside. That is the omega of apostasy. All of a sudden we are going to begin to, 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 to get into foolishness and arguments that have nothing to do with anything and divide the church. Why is this such an important piece of doctrine? Why must you be careful of the leaven of the modern day Pharisees and Sadducees? Why must you be careful not to eat the poison that they bring in? Just as soon as the people of God, L.O.I. says in manuscript 173, just as soon as the people of God are sealed in their foreheads, it is not any seal or mark that can be seen. What is the seal of God? It is a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that they cannot be what? So that they cannot be moved. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. Indeed, it has begun already. The judgments of God are now upon the land to give us warning that we may know what is coming. When you see the coronavirus and they've gone from alpha to beta to, 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 to delta to now they got lambda and gamma and the one that they're now afraid of is one called mu. They're going to wind up reaching the omega of the coronavirus. New variants keep popping up. We see hurricanes are all over the place. We thought New Orleans was going to get beat up by the hurricane. Who would have thought that dozens of people would have died right next door here in New York? Earthquakes like the one that happened in Haiti. I could go on and on uh, of all of the prophecies being fulfilled. What the spirit of prophecy is saying to us is that all of these things are not given so that we are afraid. They're giving so that we are warned. You must be sealed. It is not any seal or mark that can be seen. It is a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually. So it's not enough to have the labor experience with the Bible. You've got to actually spiritually have settled in, which means you no longer behave the way you used to. The Bible begins to transform you. That's why they could only eat it in the holy place. Because when you have an experience with God's word like that, it begins to transform you. And the word of God from the inside out changes you. Just like when you eat food, it changes you from the inside out. The secret to good skin is less about what you put on your skin, more about what you put in your body. How you look as a Christian will have more to do with what you put in yourself spiritually than just the trappings of what's around. Ellen White says, we may talk of the blessings of the Holy Spirit, but unless we prepare ourselves for its reception, of what avail are our works? Are we striving with all our power to attain to the stature of men and women in Christ? Are we seeking for his fullness, ever pressing toward the mark set before us? What is the mark set before us? It is the perfection of his character. 
When Jesus returns and the, and, the, and the clouds roll back and the atmosphere like a scroll is moved away. And when Christ begins to circle the globe to collect his redeemed, what he is not is going to be looking for isn't, uh, 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 you know, my, my, my individual face. He's going to be looking for his character reflected in me. See, if your character, if you have the character of Christ, you're not afraid of the second coming. Look at what she says. She says, when the Lord's people reach this mark. What mark? The mark of the perfection of his character. When we reach this mark, God's people will be sealed in their foreheads, filled with the spirit. They will be complete in Christ, and the recording angel will declare, it's finished. Have you thought about that? God is waiting for his church to get right. Jesus also says in Matthew 24 that this gospel must be preached in all the world as a witness and then he'll come. And a lot of us, that's our focus. Well, we got to preach, we got to preach, we got to preach. You ever wonder that maybe we're slowing down the second coming because we are not sealable? Because we are not dining with the divine? Because we're not spending enough time with God? Because we are listening to the false doctrines and the false thoughts of the world? See, the Holy Spirit was represented on that table because the frankincense, which is a form of the incense, was actually on the bread. It was mixed together. When you take in the word of God, that's why before you study God's word, you ought to pray for the Holy Spirit. The Bible says it is the Holy Spirit that will lead you into all truth. So I says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth. What will they be turned unto? They will be turned unto fables. In fact, Peter says this, 2 Peter 2 and verse 1, there are false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. Privately, they will slip in heresy even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. You see that? Even denying the Lord that bought them? This goes back to this, this idea that, you know, that God, Christ isn't really divine and the Holy Spirit is... This is literally going to happen. It was prophesied. And if you aren't studying the Bible for yourself, if you don't know what we believe, if you are not at the table of showbread, the, uh, dining with God regularly, uh, having worship with your family and, and going deep with getting commentaries and, and studying God's word and, and reading what the, the spirit of prophecy says, not really uh, understanding. You know what's, what saddens me is that from our own pulpits, folk come into our own pulpits and mock those who learn the 2300-day prophecy. They mock a whole food plant-based diet, our health message. I have preachers of our own denomination come into the pulpit and act as if someone who studies these things is somehow frivolous, foolish, and fanatical. But let me tell you something. It is based on a lack of these precious truths that many, when the final deception comes, will be swept away. I saw this and I thought it was great. Four horsemen, and they say, the fifth one comes, and they say, who are you? It's misinformation. Because what's happening is that many are not eating spiritual good food. They are eating spiritual junk food. 
literally eating spiritual junk food. That's why in Isaiah 55 and verse 2 it says, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness, in abundance. So all of these great things, you know this is not real food. Michael Pollan, the, the author of the book The Omnivore's Dilemma, says that these foods are actually food-like substances made in a factory, not, not grown out of the ground. It's not real food. And Americans are eating this food. This is why so many of us as Americans are so sick, because we're not eating real food. But watch this. What is happening to the palate of America at the dinner table is happening to the spiritual palate of the church from week to week. The Bible is like sprouted whole grain bread. Folk instead are eating Pop-Tarts spiritually. If you got Pop-Tarts, I'm not mad at you. My mother used to buy me Pop-Tarts when I was little too. Don't get, I'm not mad. I don't eat them no more, but I used to like them. Pop-Tarts aren't real food. It's a food-like substance. You ever wonder how the frosting stay on there for weeks at end? It's not real food. And if physically eating fake food does you that much damage, what does that happen spiritually when you eat fake food? John 6, Jesus says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me has everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. He says in verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Verse 63, and once the disciples kind of figured it out, a few verses later, he says, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profits nothing. He says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are what? Life. Thou shalt set up on the table showbread before me always. Are you always setting up? The bread of life on the table of showbread in your home? Is the table of showbread receiving fresh bread every day in your heart? I love how it connects to the Sabbath, that it was on the Sabbath that the bread was re-delivered, that fresh bread came. It speaks to the importance of the Sabbath in the sanctuary message. Every Sabbath when we come to church, we ought to come already fed with the bread of life, already having it. We should each be like a loaf, like bringing a loaf of bread. We should each be bringing something to the worship experience. The reason so many people can't stand church is because all week they've been Netflixing to death. They've been listening to the music of the world. The demons have been dancing in their head and, 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 and running across their screen. Then they come into the holy place and when they come in here and and the word of God is preached, you can't stand it because the spirit that's here is so different than the spirit you've been messing with all week. It's not enough to call yourself a Christian. And I hear some of the preachers preaching now some stuff that is just flat out dangerous. 
We have been called to gain victory over sin, to, to strive to have the character of Christ. Jesus didn't come in Adam's unfallen nature. He came in fallen nature. That's one of the lies that people tell in the last days. He gained victory over sin just like we can. If you can put your hand in his hand and trust him fully, I say this all the time, like the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. You know, the more I look to Jesus, the less this world matters. I have folk arguing over this vaccine. I keep telling people, stop calling me about vaccines. I don't want to talk about vaccines. If you want to talk about the character of Christ, let's have a discussion. Folk are going to be lost arguing over vaccines. I'm more concerned with being vaccinated against sin. I want the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what Ellen White says and, 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 as we close. These are po powerful text uh, uh, passages here. Sanctification only through practicing the truth. Man must not only read the word of God, supposing that a casual knowledge of his word will bring about in him a reformation of character. The work only the one who is the way, the truth, and the life can accomplish. Firmly may certain doctrines of truth be held. Again and again they may be reiterated till the holders come to think that they are indeed in possession of the great blessings which these doctrines represent. Watch this. But the greatest, most powerful truths may be held and yet kept in the outer court, exerting little influence to make the daily life wholesome and fragrant. The soul is not sanctified through the truth that is not practiced. Letter 16, 1892. It's not enough to have our names written on the rolls of the church. I want my name written in the Lamb's book of life. I'll close with this last text. Revelation 3 and verse 20. This is the invitation I want each of you to remember this week. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. You're not doing the knocking. He is. The tugging you feel on your heart, that is Christ knocking. The feeling that you get when you're watching something inappropriate or you hear something said that you shouldn't hear, uh, the, the, the feeling that you get when you know you should step in and be a Christian in a certain situation, but you're too afraid and you stand back, that tugging that you feel is Christ knocking. Let me in. You see, I want Jesus in control of the vessel. It's not enough to give Jesus the keys and let him sit in the driver's seat. It's not enough for you to move to the passenger seat and let him start the car. I've learned it's not even enough to jump in the back seat and leave him in the front seat. You've got to ask Jesus to lock you in the trunk. And let him drive your life. Church Jesus is about to return. Playtime is over. 
It is time that we take this thing seriously. And that we, that we dine with the divine daily. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study a word and further explore the sanctuary. Lord, all we like sheep have gone astray. There is none righteous, no, not one. Father God, we have not given up on your power. You say, Lord, if we can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. You say, Lord, that some things come only by prayer and fasting. You say, Father God, that with you nothing is impossible. Father God, although I have lived a life of failure and mistakes, Lord, as, as, as I look back on my life, as we were talking about yesterday, how much was left on the table. But I am so glad, God, that you don't look at 40 or 30 or 50 or 60 years of life and worry about our squandered opportunities. Father God, all you do is keep knocking at the door. Keep asking us to let you in. There's no handle on the door. You can't force your way in. We've got to let you in. Father God, today, on this Labor Day weekend Sabbath, I ask that each one of us would open that door. Have you come in, sit down, and fellowship with you at the table. Father God, it's not enough that our names are written in the church rolls. We need our names written in the Lamb's book of life. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.